wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. You can follow Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts to ensure that you never miss an episode. Please share episodes with your friends and make sure you connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Some people inspire us by overcoming enormous difficulties and setbacks. I'm going to introduce you to one such person today as my guest on Bleeding Daylight. Kristen Beale is the author of three books, a weekly comic strip and an upcoming TV show based on one of her books. She's completed nine marathons and is a national level fencer. Kristen has always led a very active life. When she was in her mid-teens, one moment changed her life forever and many would describe it as a defining moment. But again and again, she has refused to be defined by that moment in time. It's my honour to welcome her to Bleeding Daylight today Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Let's go back to your early teens. Tell me about the kind of active life that you enjoyed as a young person. What was life like for you back then? Active was a very good way to describe me. Ever since I can remember, I've been involved in sports. Cheerleading was my first sport. I was a sideline cheerleader for football games, and then I became a competition cheerleader, which is much more serious. And then I was um, the captain of my lacrosse team. And then I was also on the field hockey team. So I was always doing something year round, very active. When I wasn't doing that, I was running around the neighborhood or the mall as I got older. But um, I was always, always doing something, always moving. Was that a kind of thing that was happening in your family? Were, Were your family always active or was this just something that was you? My sister is not a very, she's not as into sports. She's not as active. Actually, my mom and my dad either. So it's it's kind of just me. It's kind of something that I discovered. Um, I started with cheerleading, which side the football game, sideline cheerleading isn't as active. Um, so I kind of wheeled, like, wane my way into it there. And then I realized that I love to, like, work really hard for something and see the results of it and be able to get better in my sport and be able to improve. It's an outlet for my teenage angst when I was younger. And then as I got older, like going into high school, it's just a good outlet for me and a good way to keep myself accountable health-wise. And obviously, you these days being an author and all the things that you're doing, it wasn't just sporting for you. How were your grades at uh, school back then? Kind of mediocre. Never, I wasn't really like a really good student. I wasn't, you know, (laughs) very, very smart, but um, I kind of have the thing, the thing, I'm not, I'm not very great at things that I'm not very interested in. So the things I'm interested in, I do great at, and I excel at, but kind of like a middle of the BCs kind of student. I'm, I'm more of a sports creative type. <laughs> so it sounds like whatever you're doing, if, if there's a passion for it, you enjoy working for it. So whether that was the the schoolwork that you enjoyed, you would work for it, and the sporting activities, you would work for it, but the rest, yeah, not so much. Yeah, I can. Um, I can't really force a passion, but when I have a passion for things, I'm I'm good. Now, in your mid-teens, something happened, and maybe you can start to describe what was going on for you at that stage. Yeah. So when I was um, a freshman in high school, I was very athletic. I was on those three sports teams. I had a lot of friends. I had a tan body. I was just on top of the world. It was one of the happiest years of my life. I still say that. 
And so the summer after my freshman year in high school, at the very last weekend of the summer, I went to Lake Gaston with with three of my friends, one of them that I had grown up with since youth group, and one of them who I had met the weekend before on a youth group trip to amusement park. And I had a really big crush on him because he was really cute. He smiled. He laughed at my jokes. You know, I had a really big crush on him. And then the other guy... I had only just met that weekend, so I didn't know him before we went to the lake. And on the last day of being at the lake, we went on two jet skis. I was riding with Mark, who was the guy who I didn't know very well. And then Field, my crush, was driving Aubrey, my old friend, in a combination of a no-wake zone and Field not paying attention. Field drove on top of, into and on top of my and Mark's jet ski, So Mark is driving the jet ski and I'm riding. Mark fell forward and died on impact. And then I was in the middle of turning around like, watch out. What is that noise? And it hit me on the left side of the, of the head and the middle of my back. Mark fell in the water and died on impact. And I fell in the water and I was wearing a life vest. So I was sitting up like I was in a chair. I don't remember this. I was completely knocked out. But the lady who was in a boat nearby told me all this. And I had a traumatic brain injury from my hit on the head. And I had a spinal cord injury from my um, my, my T8 vertebrae, which if you don't know, probably don't. It's um, at the rib bones. It's right over top of the rib bones that stick out right above your belly button. And so that I had a complete injury. They said that I was not going to live. They said that I was not going to live, make it to the hospital. Um, I made it to the hospital. I was unconscious for about a month. They told my parents that I'm not going to breathe or talk or my parents flew in from where they were vacationing in Virginia. So they drove in, but they flew in their car. <laughs> they flew in their cars. They drove so fast, but it was about five, six hours. They got there and they were told I was not going to breathe or talk or swallow on my own or, and there would be a vegetable. And there was a long list of things that they would say. They would said, if she doesn't die, then, and if she gets through all this stuff, she's definitely not going to um, feel or move below her injury level because she's paralyzed. Complete injury means no feeling and no movement below those rib bones. Telling my parents all this, I can't even imagine what that's like to be a, as a parent, but I was just, you know, laying on the bed. So that was August 28th of 2005. So I stayed at North Carolina for about a month. And then they flew me back to Richmond, Virginia, which is my hometown. And I was there, and I was in the, in the hospital for about three months, but I was unconscious at this time. I was unconscious until about the last month of being in the hospital. And they said, okay, she's, you know, breathing. I started breathing on my own. I was coming in and out of consciousness, but I don't really remember because I had short-term memory loss because of my traumatic brain injury. But then I woke up and my memory came back and I started having my first memories after my accident around Halloween time in the hospital which is going against everything my doctor said I was going to be able to do. I was talking, I was breathing, I was seeing friends in the hospital. So I'm already a miracle right there. And then I started getting better and I started working on, I guess, life in the wheelchair. And and remember, well, I was 14 when I got hurt and I turned 15 about five days after my accident. All my friends started sophomore year of high school. I was still in the hospital. So I stayed in the hospital until December 13th of 2005. So it was about four months of being in the hospital. They're telling my parents this whole time and me, now that I'm awake, you're not going to feel a removal of your injury. 
sorry, enjoy your life in a wheelchair. Here's how to, you know, push through grass. They're teaching me, they're focusing everything on living in a wheelchair, which is good and very necessary for me to live in a wheelchair. But they were giving me no hope. They were giving me no even hint of the fact that you can recover, um, maybe not completely walking, which I believe that I can, but um, you can recover some feeling and some movement. And I realized that they shouldn't be going around saying you can get this back, but they just gave me no hope. But my parents were doing research this whole time into a place called Project Walk in California that is rehabilitation after your accident. As I was learning this terrible stuff like off-roading, you know, my wheelchair going through the grass, which I thought was the worst thing that you could possibly tell me to do is move my wheelchair on the grass. They were saying, just get through this, just learn how to do this. And we're going to California and we're going to work on you getting your feeling and movement back. Two weeks out of the hospital. So this uh, January 1st, I was landing in San Diego, California to work out for four hours a day, five days a week for a month and a half to get as much as I could movement and sensation back before I had to start back at school for that trip, I ended up coming home and being able to wiggle my toes, which, you know, the doctor said I could never feel or move below my injury level again. So I kind of proved them wrong in that part too. And that was the beginning of my long and never ending and still going journey of getting stuff back and rehabilitating my body. Going back to the the moments after this happened, or, or even the hours after this happened, your parents are being told all these things. And, and obviously, you weren't conscious. You don't know what was going on, but I'm sure that they've shared this with you again and again. What were they thinking when doctors were saying, there is no hope for your daughter, that even if she does wake up, that she's going to be incapacitated in the most awful ways for the rest of her life? What was their thinking at this stage? So I didn't know any of this. Um, my, well, my dad, I did know that my dad kept a Caring Bridge journal, which is like a journal update online. The rumor mill was starting in my high school. People were saying I was in a drunk driving accident and that I was, you know, fell off a horse and all this crazy stuff that didn't happen. And so my dad started this Caring Bridge journal, which he would update several times a day in the beginning and then once a day. And then, you know, when something happened, big happens, like I published a book or something now at this point, but he would go back and he would document every feeling, everything that happened, every everything that he was going through. And so as I was writing my first book, Greater Things, I went back and I read all this caring bridge of the play-by-play of everything that happened. And I read the moment that the doctors told him that I would die and that I wouldn't have all this stuff and all those, the feeling or the talking and breathing and all that stuff that they told him. I read his reaction to that and it broke my heart. I mean, he's told that his smallest child is not going to live anymore. So I'm not going to have a life. I'm not going to be, you know, ever the person I was going to be again today. Um, and it was very hard to read. And it was kind of complicated because it makes me feel a sense of responsibility. Like I, because I, I made them feel that way, but I didn't make them feel the way. It's not my fault. Just feeling all those emotions because it's very hard hitting, I guess. So I included that in my book. So in my first book, it's kind of like my perspective and things that happened in my point of view. And then it switches over to dad's dad's point of view, dad's caring bridge, the things he wrote. So that was interesting. And that kind of will um, make you cry in my first book because it's very um, emotional because he's being raw with everyone. 
it's heartbreaking. You're mentioning there that you, you're feeling really bad that your dad's feeling this way, even though you know it's not your fault. And there's another thing that's happened that's not your fault, the, the accident itself. At the same time that you're trying to rehabilitate and get some sort of mobility and do all these things that the doctors have said you'll never do, I'm sure you're also having to deal with the fact that even though it was a friend that you hadn't known for long, a friend lost their life during this accident. Mm-hmm. How were you dealing with that in that moment? In that moment, I wasn't really dealing with it because I had enough things to distract me and I couldn't, and I didn't have the time. So people ask me, how did you feel? What did you do when you woke up and realized you're paralyzed and you can't move anymore? And, you know, were you angry? Were you upset? All that, like all those questions that seems like it would be, of course I was, but I didn't, I didn't really go through that as much because I didn't give myself the time I get because I woke up and it was like, bam, she's awake. Kristen got to learn how to roll through the grass so we can get out of this hospital. So I didn't, nothing really sank in with me until months later after I got back from California and school started and life started to slow down again because I didn't give myself time to grieve anything with Mark's death or with the losses that I took. Because at that point, my life was just so like, don't sleep, you know, we got to get out of this. And it wasn't really focused on what I lost, because I didn't have time for that. And I'm thankful for that, because that helped my grieving process or my, my acceptance process after my accident, because I didn't have time to lay around and, you know, feel sorry for myself or feel sad about what happened. Because that is ultimately, it's healthy, and it's good to do that. But it's all in my case, it's a waste of time because I had so many other things to be doing. So I didn't have a hard time with that until I guess until I went back to school and I, and I realized I was kind of thrown into a crowd of my peers who they had a great summer and they came back to school and life didn't really change. And I kind of noticed my difference between me and them because my life is so much different and I'm learning how to pull my pants while they're, you know, picking up their prom dress. So I didn't really see the stark difference until I went back to school. And that's when I started to very slowly grieve and feel it and feel the difference. And then when I went to college, you know, bam, that's when it all hit. <laughs> but but I managed to avoid it for a, for a couple of years. Tell me about that period of going back to school and you're seeing all your friends that are living out the dreams that you must have had as that teenage girl. They're living it out and you don't have the opportunity to, or at least you are doing it in a very different way to them. Tell me about that process for you and and how did you come to terms with it? High school was great. I'm not going to say it's a great years of my life because that's when my accident happened, but the people, I told you that I had so many friends. I had a ton of friends when I was in ninth grade and I kept those. We were still friends in high school because they knew me before my accident when I was alive and alight. And then my accident where I was, there was kind of struggling and they, a lot of them drifted off, but I had, I had friends and I had community around me that supported all the crazy stuff I was doing, like going to California for a month and a half. And and trying all these new things and living this whole life. And my community was really great for that. I didn't really struggle very much in high school. But then in college, I'm thrown into this whole new environment where we're surrounded by these people who didn't know me before my accident, have no reason to love me because they don't know every single detail of everything that I've gone through, like the people that I grew up with. 
they're in a totally different point in their lives. It feels as me because they're like doing the typical college things. And I am not so into that at that point in my life. So it, it didn't, so co- high school was great. Cause I, I still fit in and people still accepted me, but college was a little bit tougher because I had to actually make new friends in a wheelchair. I'm purely Kristen in a wheelchair. I'm not like Kristen who went all through all this stuff and we love her because she struggled, all that stuff. High school was good. College was tough. Big changes there. When did you start to move beyond just getting mobility back in using the wheelchair and to the point that you're at now? And I know that we can fast forward now. We know that the story is is heading in an upward trajectory. But at this stage, you're, you're still coming to terms with how to live in a wheelchair. When did that start to turn to, I'm going to thrive in this wheelchair? I would say around college. Well, I started I started my first adaptive sport, which was skiing. Um, and that was kind of the first the first of many adaptive sports I've, I've tried. Last time I counted, it was 15 and counting and always adding on to that whenever I have the opportunity. But that was kind of my first outlet of getting back to who I used to be because I was so athletic before and sports have always been my thing and my way to cope and my way to get out my energy and all that stuff. And so I started with skiing. That was about still when I was in high school, it was still when I was a sophomore. So it was pretty quickly after. And that's when I started to get like comfortable and like, I'm going to, I'm not going to be in this wheelchair forever because I'm going to learn to walk again and I'm going to be back on my feet. But while I'm in it, I'm going to you know, make the best of it. And so I started with skiing, have gone down trying to find my passion, uh, find passions in sports again. I started with, I guess, getting more comfortable in my wheelchair around college time. After freshman year, I said, I need to make friends. I need to immerse myself. I need to me embrace myself and in a way that makes other people embrace me in a wheelchair. It worked. And sophomore year of college, um, I really started to thrive and I really started to get my confidence back because I was making friends and I had my first boyfriend after after I was hurt because I, I went through a time that I was like, you know, no boys are ever going to want to be with me until I can walk again because, you know, I'm a lot to take on. But then I had my first boyfriend after I was hurt when I was a sophomore in high school and college. And that's when I started to kind of get my confidence and get friends and then kind of embrace it. So you're moving into more and more of, of what we might term a, a normal life. Mm-hmm. You're, you're taking on the sorts of activities that used to engage you before. You're making more friends. What sort of prejudices did you notice from those around? You mentioned that at first when you went to college, you weren't everyone's friend and so they weren't so keen to to get to know more about you. What are some of the prejudices that you've noticed, even up to this day, of, of you being in a wheelchair? What does that cause as a reaction in other people? This is a good one because this is what I try to accomplish with my books too because people with disabilities are kind of like the other, which you know everything makes sense because we look different. We have different struggles. We just have a different, in a lot of ways, like a different trajectory about us because we have you know different struggles. So people tend to categorize us or, you know, push us off. And I'm kind of playing victim a little bit, but just, I'm just generalizing with my books and with my personality and with my connecting with people and talking to people and engaging with people. I try to put a different face to at least my disability. So to come across as more of like, this is Kristen, like she's just, she's just like us. She's just a normal person just doing her best 
but she just like had this unfortunate thing happen and she just sits down a little bit more than, than everyone else does, but she's still a normal person instead of us being like the other. And like, I don't understand what she's going through. She's a lot to handle. So I'm just gonna, you know, not engage with this person. I try to make myself the most open and with the books, that's one of the main reasons that I decide to write the book is because I'm showing people, you know, I'm going through all this, this unique stuff, but I'm just figuring it out and like figure it out with me. And like, I, and so I try to add humor to my books in a way that people can connect and be and say, hopefully she's just like me. She's just figuring it out. And she's just, you know, going through a tough thing. I guess the assumptions that people make is that we're too much or that we have other stuff going on or, you know, whatever it is, but I try to be the most open and transparent and talk to people and engage with people the most. So they see that I may look different, but I'm a pretty cool girl or I'm, I'm good to talk to. I guess more generally for people that are encountering those with whatever form of, of disability, what would your advice be? Because I get the feeling that most often you're sidelined because people aren't sure what to say. So they think it's safer. Let's just not say anything. Let's not engage. <laughs> so what advice would you give to people? Ask questions. Because most of us, I can't say all of us, because that's also generalizing, but most of us just love to talk, like love to educate people. Like it, it was such a big deal to me when I, sophomore year of college, when I started making friends, when I started putting myself out there, when people would do something so simple as learn how to take apart my wheelchair to put it in a car, just like pop the wheels off and put the frame in. It's not a big deal, but it would mean so much to me when I was making friends or I was dating and they would just do it because they just, that's just taking the extra effort. Or when they would say, Kristen, can I help you up this hill? You know, the answer is probably usually no, but it's better than, believe it or not, there are people who just come up behind me and push me without me asking or sometimes introducing themselves. They're just like strangers coming up and push me. So it's, it's ask questions if you can do something or if I need help with something or ask questions like, Kristen, where do you lose feeling? Or what kind of feeling do you have? Can you feel this or this? Um, ask questions about my disability, just kind of educate yourself because it's very flattering to me to know that I'm so much to take on, which, you know, I'm aware of that, but somebody wanting to take the time to go the extra effort and learn how to accommodate me and learn more about me. And obviously your books are a big part of that. And you, you've mentioned your first book where you're starting to outline exactly what happened and your dad's response and and how it was turning life around. Once you were on a roll with these books, I mean, you, you kept going. Tell us about the others that you've written. I published Greater Things in, and I quit my job at a mortgage company three months after the book came out. Um, I was running out of money and I said, what is something that I do a lot of, I know a lot about? that I can write another book on because I either have to get another job or I have to write another book. And I chose to write another book. So my answer to that question was go on bad first dates. And so I, um, so I decided that I would write the second book, a comic book out of going on bad first dates. So I updated my dating profile on a dating app Bumble. And I went on 32 dates in two and a half months, like wouldn't recommend it to anyone. And I made a comic about each date um, and then also comics about, you know, there are five or six jokes that everyone makes, you know, when they see me in a wheelchair, like you should get headlights on that thing or like 
weird jokes that people make. And there are things just around my disability that I make comics about. So it's a disability related comic book, but it's also dating. So whichever, which most everyone can relate to. And then I have the added component of a wheelchair, which just adds a little bit of humor to it. So that was my second book. My third book is a million sons that came out in 2020. And it's kind of a continuation of greater things more or less, but the theme of it is more of finding my passions that I lost with my accident. So a lot of them were sports. So I found wheelchair fencing and I found hand cycling, a little bit of a spoiler alert. And then I found that I met my um, now husband. I met, we kind of have a little story about how we met. So he has a chapter. So I, I found, so with all the, with all the whole book, I found my passions in fencing, hand cycling and Christopher, my husband, but then I kind of go through all of the different experiences and I add, I mean, it's, it's add humor to it because I have a very similar perspective as an able-bodied person. And I'm kind of looking at some things and saying, what the heck, no way, why is this like it? And other things, you know, I'm just kind of trying everything in order to find what I love. So those have been awesome and so much fun because I can connect with people that previously don't really know a lot about disability and may have the assumptions in their head, but I can, I can connect with them. And in a way that's like, I'm just like you. And I have the same personality as you almost, you know, I'm just figuring this out along with you. I'm taking you along the ride with me. So it's been really, really fun to show people that different side of disability. And as you say, one of the, the most fun ones there is, of course, the book Date Me, but it didn't just stay as a book. You're in the middle of putting together a TV series about it. Give me an understanding of how that came about. That's correct. That is, that's um, been so much fun because I had a producer in Richmond um, approach me uh, like three years ago, maybe two or three years ago, and say... I would love to make Date Me into a TV show. That sounds great. Like, let's work together. I'll get back to you when I finish my project. I'm a little busy right now. I'll get back to you. And I was like, oh, that sounds great. That's really cool. But in my head, I'm like, yeah, right. He's not going to get back to me. Because at that time, I had already had two people approach me for to make Greater Things a movie, which, you know, I get very excited about that stuff, of course. But then both of them fell through. So when this guy asked me to be to make Date Me a TV show, that's even better than anything I had imagined. But I was kind of like, yeah, right, to protect my own excitement. But then about a year later, he actually did get back to me, which is very cool. And his name is Tyler. His our, The production uh, company is called Saltfire Studio. We have been making um, Date Me into a TV show. We've been working on it for about a year and a half. We, the first episode came out last last year. And it's been really cool because we ca- we got to cast, you know, Kristen. The her name is Emily Cheneau, but she plays Kristen. She's from Los Angeles, and she came over here to um, to play my part. We have, let's see, first episode. We have four guy, four different guys for seven different dates. So I got to kind of do online dating again because by picking these people to go on the dates with. Except the best part is I didn't have to actually go on the dates because my character was going through them and I got to relive the dates through Emily and all these dates that I picked out, except the best part is I didn't have to actually relive them. I didn't have to actually do it because it was all my character (laughs) doing it because date me is 
word for word. I would go on these dates and I would sometimes, um, I would sometimes like write myself a little, a few notes during the date. But always I would come home right from the date and make the comic. So a lot of the things that are in the, are in the date me book are like a quote from the date or like exactly what happened. Um, so I'm reliving those again through the TV show. So if I got my revenge once by publishing a book about our date, I'm getting re- my revenge twice for making a TV show about the date that I go on with these guys. Um, so it's really fun. And we just recorded episode two. So episode one is on YouTube. If you just search date me, then it'll come up and it's the, um, one with the blue background and the comic, you'll see it. Um, so episode one, date me on YouTube. And then episode two is going to be on YouTube. We just recorded it and it'll be up hopefully soon. I've had the opportunity to see a, a little of it and it's a fun show. <laughs> I'm wondering though, what is it like for you? I mean, you, you've mentioned all the upsides that you don't have to go through the dates <laughs> again, but what's it like actually seeing someone play you through experiences that you've actually lived on the screen. It's weird. Uh, she came over the night before the first episode to, you know, learn how to use a wheelchair and ride around in it, which is not a very difficult skill to learn, but there's things like don't ever move your legs, how to teaching, how to transfer. I actually decided to, um, try to teach her how to do a wheelie when we went out in the middle of my cul-de-sac and she flipped backwards. She didn't hit her head, but she flipped backwards because I don't know why I decided to teach her how to do a wheelie right there. It's cool because she's, it's kind of like what I was saying before of somebody taking the effort to try to learn me on a different level of like, so try to be me. She's wearing some of my clothes, some of them are hers, some of them are mine. And she's rolling around in my wheelchair. And then the first episode, she is fencing. The second episode, she's going to be hand cycling. It's really cool because she's just learning how to be me. And I'm able to instruct her. You know, I'm, I'm the producer. So I'm sitting there. It's things from like, you know, you moved your leg in this scene. Let's do it again to things like, uh, I don't do, I don't say, don't say that so cheerfully, like bring it down a little notch. So I'm, I'm coaching everything from her disability to her tone of voice. And it's really cool. And it's very weird. It was very weird at the beginning. Now it's a little bit less so, but it's very weird just having someone living the things that I've already done. It's a very unique experience that is really cool. I'm wondering what part faith played in all this time. Where was God in all of this? God has always been at the forefront. My faith has been the reason that I've been able to be so strong and be so um, positive. For somehow I've been just, I'm just such a positive person and somehow I, I think about that and I'm like, I don't know how <laughs> I'm able to do that because, you know, seemingly my life has so many things, so many speed bumps, hurdles, all that stuff. But I am just able to keep my positivity and keep my, it's because of just the hope that I have. I have so much hope and so much faith that something good is going to come out of this. Either it's going to come or something good is coming out of it. And I can see that with my books, for example, because I'm able to reach so many people and I've had so much feedback of Kristen, I'm going through what I'm going through, but I see what you're going through and I see you have your faith and I see you're just going on and that's inspiring me. And I can see how my story is impacting other people. Honestly, I don't, I don't know how people do it without some kind of faith because it's the only reason that I can keep going every day. So it's been very prominent and my rock 
I'm wondering for those people that have read your books, as you mentioned, you, you've had some great feedback. What are some of those stories that have really warmed your heart and thought, yeah, it was worth all the time I spent in, in creating this book? There's not a specific story, but it's especially in greater things because you we see since the weekend before my accident when I was at the lake and through getting hurt, through being in the hospital, going to high school and college and all those sports and all the things I tried, California, it's not a theme of struggle, but it's a story of struggle. I've framed it in a way that is true to how it happened of I'm struggling and this is hard, but I, it could have been so much worse because I'm in, I'm surrounded by these people. I'm surrounded by like, and then I'm into the disabled community, especially when I went to California, I'm working out this gym for neurological disorders. So I'm surrounded by a disability. So I'm working out, you know, like I said, four hours a day, five days a week to move my foot and someone's doing the exact same thing, working out just as hard as I am, if not harder to move their hands. And, you know, I don't, I can move my fingers without even thinking. So it's, it's very humbling and it's just stuff like that and stuff like showing, being able to show my struggle and show how I'm handling it with my faith and with my optimism and with my hope that is the best part of being able to share. And that's the most impactful thing is that I can, is that I'm able to share that, yes, I'm struggling. Yes, we're all struggling, but it's really not that bad. We have the resources to talk to other people and to share and be in community and to work hard, set goals. That's, that's the best part about being able to share is to be able to share that perspective. And looking further ahead, you're still looking for, for further improvement. You're still looking to not just move your feet, but at one stage to, to start to walk again. And I guess you're looking at a, a mixture of that hard work, but also the sorts of technology that we're seeing being developed all the time. Where does the future take you in your mind? It is so exciting. The future is so exciting because science is catching up and they are coming out, coming out like it's it's in the future, but I don't think it's very far in the future with, I'm going to call it cures for paralysis, but ways to um, help me along a lot, but you can't really do you can't really utilize all that science and all the advances if you're not keeping your body healthy. If I'm not keeping my bone density, if I'm not standing up in like a standing frame to keep my bone density good. If I'm not exercising and eating right and keeping my body in good shape because I'm doing that to get my own feeling and sensation back on my own. Yes. But also to keep my body ready for when a cure comes out so I can be a great candidate because I know that it's only a matter of time because doctors, I follow the doctors very closely and they're almost there. They're getting very close. So I think it's very important for people with disabilities to do the best they can to keep their body in as best shape as it can so they can be ready for the answer and ready for some extra help from science. And so that's my daily task. That's, that's why I I mean, that's one of the reasons why I do how much as much as I do with sports and with eating right and with keeping myself in happy and sane mind so that I'll be ready to jump in as soon as I can. Are there more books on the way from you? Yes, I'm working on my, my fourth book right now. And it's a fiction, which is tricky. And I've never done a fiction before, but it's turning out to be so much fun. I have a few more books in my mind, um, but I'm working on another book right now. So stay tuned. 
I'm sure that there are people who would love to get a hold of the, the three books that you've written so far, Greater Things, Date Me and A Million Sons. If they're wanting to get hold of them or to find the best place to actually see the TV show of Date Me, where's the best place for them to go? My website is kristenbeal.com. That will be in the show notes. You can buy my books. You can watch a video. You can sign up for my weekly comics in your inbox every Monday. You can read a little excerpt from Greater Things. My books are also available on Amazon. And then you can follow my Instagram, my weekly comic Instagram at Greater Things Comics. And if you want to watch the Date Me TV show, you can go to YouTube and search Date Me and find it on there. And then you can also follow along um, on Instagram to see the updates for episode two at Date Me Show. And then on Facebook, we're at, at Date Me Series. And then one more thing, if you want to follow me personally, Kirsten Beal, this is where it gets complicated. I just got married in April, which is very exciting. Um, not someone that I met on the Date Me Experiment, someone I met at church, you know, a year later. I'm um, on Instagram. I am Kristen Gupta, G-U-P-T-A. And so you can follow me. And then from from my, from my if you follow me, then you can also get the Greater Things comics and the Date Me because I have them all on my profile. So you can follow along all the things, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. I'm sure that you'll have a lot of people that will want to connect. And and as you mentioned, I will put all those links into the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. So that's your one-stop shop. People can go there and get all the connections. But Kristen, it has been a delight to speak to you, to hear something of your story, to hear of your attitude and the way that you're speaking out, not just on your own behalf, but on behalf of of many others. And it's been a, a really wonderful time. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.